coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. We work with systems that collect huge amounts of data and process them in some way, either in streaming analytics or later processed analytics, and then adding another data set to answer some complex question in the fastest way possible and get it to the right person. So that could be business intelligence systems where you're mapping contract data, time cards to performance and answering questions that way. We do a lot of cybersecurity analytics, which is focused on processing network information data as fast as possible. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Today on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Shana Cosgrove, who is quite the experienced entrepreneur. She's actually started a few different tech companies, and she specializes in software development for the U.S. government today. So I tried to poke her a little bit to, to get into some of the things that she may be working on, but unfortunately, she wasn't able to discuss a lot of it. But we talk about building business and how to get into different types of organizations, how she grew her company, and we even get into some of the the tech that she feels will be developing and evolving and sort of leading the way in the very, very near future. So a really inter- interesting conversation today with Shayna, and I hope you enjoy today's episode of Pass the Secret Sauce. My dinner table growing up was typically all of us sitting around. We had dinner, I think about 6 p.m. My father came home, changed clothes. My mother had dinner ready. We almost always had salad, milk and water, some meat and potato. Mm -hmm. And when my mother started working, when she was older, when I was older, she was a nurse and she would often talk about (laughs) very like, detailed things at the dinner table about what happened that day. (laughs) So I definitely remember (laughs) very gory conversations and talking about different surgeries. She actually was a nurse supporting some of the first transplant patients in the United States. So that's exciting. uh, Yeah. She would talk about that. I don't remember my father talking much about work, but, and then we had to do the dishes. That Mm -hmm. was, Mm -hmm. so we had dinner at the kitchen table almost every night together. And My mother made it. My father never cooked and he didn't help with dishes, I think, until my sisters moved out of the house. Okay. Okay. How many sisters did you have? I have two older sisters. Very cool. I'm the baby. You're the baby, huh? Excellent. So did you, did you have any entrepreneurial tendencies or anything like that growing up for you, you know, trying to sell anything or start anything at a young age at all? I never thought of it as entrepreneurial. I was very focused on being a leader Mm -hmm. and not in a specific way, just clear that I was, I was very comfortable bossing people around, coming up with ideas, 
I was class president my freshman year of high school. It just never occurred to me to be scared to take charge and run something. I never had a focus on money, but just leading a group of people was something that was very natural to me. That's interesting. So, so what were some of those first sort of leadership, I guess, positions or roles or however you want to look at it? What, what were some of those, those initial first ones? Well, I think just among my friend group, if there was a little group of girls together, I was typically the one who was the ringleader, came up with different ideas, or we created a clique, actually naming the clique, coming up with groups about the clique, reforming cliques. So a bit of a queen bee tendency. My mother likes to tell this story. We lived in Mexico when I was five, and I came back and was yelling at the neighborhood kids to do something in Spanish. <laughs> and it just, it just sort of, I was always comfortable speaking up in class, very outspoken, very mm-hmm. comfortable being in charge. I always felt like I had the right solution to a problem. Like figuring out what needed to be done was very obvious to me and lining people up to work on different portions of it was very natural mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. So what, what happened? You, you graduate high school, did you go to college? What, what were some of those next steps that you, that you took as you made your path to your, your now career? I went straight off to college after high school. I studied computer science at the University of Virginia, and then I went off into working as a software engineer in Northern Virginia, right around okay. the suburb, suburbs of DC. And I have never changed careers really ever. I've been in this career until I started my business, which is government contracting and building software systems for the government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so how did you get, I mean, obviously you're in DC, so I'm, I'm assuming some of it was just because of your location, but did you, when you were starting your company, did you have any type of ins or, you know, a foot in the door that you Oh yeah. I was super in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's actually the number one easiest way to start a business is some customer loves you, wants you, you're tired of your business and you are like, okay, hire me as a 1099 or an individual. And you take your, you take your first shot that way. So that was my path. I was in a very unique, hard to get into agency felt like dumb luck that I ended up there, but I worked at one agency because I was recruited by my master's degree professor and I was dissatisfied with that company. And I went to work for an entrepreneur. I was dissatisfied with that company. I went to work for an even smaller business and, and it was just sort of like, people want me to work on their projects. And I haven't found this dream company for myself and I'm going to start it. And it's interesting because people pay a lot to break into our specific niche. And I actually found it very easy once I was in the niche to start the business and get it going. I mean, it's not easy, but it wasn't hard. It's hard to keep it going. I think that's the hardest thing is actually successful execution yeah. But the creation of a company is relatively easy. Yeah, no, I and I would agree with that. You know, obviously, obviously, uh, you you can you can land a couple of customers, but you know, competing or com- always landing those customers and keeping that that 
project flow going is is obviously key to to success. Yeah. So so you mentioned that it was kind of dumb luck that you fell into or how you how you got into the initial company. What was what was that story behind that? What was the dumb luck that uh Well, I mean, I ended up in government contracting for two reasons. One, going to University of Virginia, so many of the businesses in Virginia that are doing software are focused on the federal government. Mm -hmm. Even if they have huge commercial arms, the area in Virginia that's recruiting at University of Virginia is federally focused, either civilian or Department of Defense. But a huge portion of the jobs that came to interview. So my first job there was in government contracting. I worked on designing software for Navy helicopter. Oh, wow. and, th- and then I worked on PKI. And I tried twice to work at commercial companies. And I didn't like it because I wasn't motivated by their work. I mm-hmm. thought it was either like a dumb software stack or why would someone buy this or, you know, so far off from buying it and was much more motivated to work on these very complex, highly integrated systems where you feel like you're really helping build something. Mm -hmm. So I very naturally liked working in Northern Virginia and stayed there. And I, I, what I say was dumb luck was that I got this very high clearance level and ended up doing work from my professor really liking me and recruiting me to work. And the company just seemed so amazing. I didn't understand that I was given the opportunity to work on this super secret stuff. So then I was in it and performing and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to start a business here. It seemed very obvious to me how to start a business there. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense. So, so what were some of the challenges? I mean, you already, obviously you already had clearance, were there any, I guess, hurdles that you had to jump through? You, you had your own personal clearance, but now you're starting a new company. Was was that difficult to be able to, you know, sort of make your way back into that that same channel, or was it, you know, was that relationship already established because it was you and and you were able to sort of just piggyback off of that same clearance? Getting your your company does need to have its own clearance, which is based upon your personal clearance, similar okay. to how you get started with financial credit. Your company credit is initially based on your personal credit as okay. well. Okay. So it is very similar and it is quite difficult to get someone to agree to put you in for the clearance process. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people in my space want to start a business and it can take one to two years, maybe more. And you typically have to take some crap job with low pay to get the clearance, right? There's a very clear trade-off, like what's, what's in it for them and what's in it for you to get it. I was fortunate that I only needed to ask three times. And on the third time I got the clearance, but I mean, Government contracting, I think, has quite a bit more paperwork than other companies. Mm-hmm. Not not that different, though, than setting up your own services agreement and working through a lawyer and understanding what all the clauses are. There's a certain number of hoops that everyone, I think, needs to jump through. And if you can't get through that and, like, calm yourself down and read through some stuff you've never done before, you're, you're not really meant to make it because there's yeah. always going to be something new that you don't understand or some gotcha that's hidden in there. And there are a lot of people willing to work through it. But in our industry, 
the hardest part is talent. I mean, finding American engineering talent that's qualified and then willing to take a chance on a one person company or a two person company. So it became a flip of since our business is based on people. Yes, we're providing a service, but that service is completely entirely dependent on people. I had to focus almost entirely on how do I attract and retain talent? It, that was the end of the day is how do I identify, attract and retain extremely qualified unicorns? How do I create like a unicorn yeah. farm and keep them happy? Okay. And, and so what, what were some of the things that you learned when you were creating your unicorn farm? What, what were some of the ways that you identified them? How did you attract them? Any, any thoughts there? It gets easier when you have more mass and as time goes on and your reputation is better known. In the beginning, not as many people knew me. So you have to take people who are almost purely in it for the money. They don't care about you or the job. It's coming to you because you're giving them the best offer, you know, like Amazon shopping for a product, right? Like it becomes very crass in the beginning. And then you have to get a believer and you have to get a second believer and you have to make them happy and have that happiness show so that the next person can kind of come on. You know, it's almost like childbirth where it's like, I don't remember how painful it was. I just remember that it was very painful. <laughs> and, there was out, a, <laughs> and there was a long time that I would stay awake at night wondering how I was ever going to figure this out and what did it take to attract this talent. But Actually, one of the major things I'm thinking through is one of the major transformations that we had was when I started posting as myself on LinkedIn. So I think I, to be honest, I cried to a good friend of mine, like, why won't Joe come work for me? Like, I don't understand. He works for some crap company. And he's, you know, he's like, well, Joe's highly paid. You got to look for the people that are dissatisfied. You have to go to higher probability like candidates of people who are trying to turn. Mm -hmm. So for instance, his example was you're trying to turn Joe who already works for a very similar business towards you like yours. But if you go to someone who's worked at a large company for a really long time, then you have a clear differentiator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that really stuck with me. I mean, it stuck with me so much, actually, that it got to I ended up starting a second business doing digital marketing and really focus on personas and users and use cases and ROI, because I, I guess I was running into this brick wall over and over again. And we focused on improving our online presence, but it wasn't until I spoke consistently. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. 
If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. And I, I don't say anything really controversial, but I'm out there on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And that is where the top passive candidates are looking in our industry. They are on there and they are watching. Yeah. I mean, and they see they, it. And what types of topics are you typically talking about? Like, what, what are you talking about your specific industry or is it more, you know, broad based where it's, you know, something that a lot of different industries or companies may you know, be interested in that specific topic? I have tried to geek out. I feel like sometimes the more I get technical, the less people are into it. I think the more I celebrate humans or other people, the more positive feedback I get. But for me, it's very natural. I guess it's almost similar to how people are on Twitter where they just post and respond and they're all over it. It's just, mm-hmm. oh, this is interesting. And I post, I, I don't give it a ton of thought. I don't have a clear pattern. It's just my voice out there and I'm engaging in other people. So mm-hmm. I'm commenting and watching them and commenting on them and pooling ties together. But we have had several exceptional people reach out to me because of my posting, right? We're looking Mm -hmm. for someone and then people will reshare it or I've had some very hard spots to fill and people have sent people over. So it's a lot more inbound calls now, largely I think because of me posting on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. How long would you say that it took you to make that transition from when you know, you were out hunting for someone to the time when you had a, enough of an audience or enough of a, a following or presence that, you know, they're reaching out to you? I would say about three-ish years. I think anyone who's really starting a business should expect those first years to really be investment learning years. I mm-hmm. think you can't really skip over that unless this is your second business and you're already known. So for example, in my marketing business, I already know a lot of CEOs. I already know that market. I know their pain points because I'm living those pain points. So selling digital marketing is way easier because I'm already enmeshed in that audience that I'm selling to or not even trying to sell. Like I'm like just chatting with you. I don't even care if you buy marketing from me, but I can rattle off like what you need to do. Yeah. So it was quite a transformation to go from a sought after engineer to a business person. And I was working as an engineer while also doing the business. So I was working Mm -hmm. in my business as employee number one while working on the business. Yeah. And even though I was slightly arrogant before I started the business and just thinking that it would be easy for me and that I'm better at business than most engineers, I really didn't know what to do as much as I thought I did. And it's a, it was a big learning curve for all the aspects. Yeah. What were some of those learning curves that you, that you realized early on that, you know, I guess were the stumbling blocks, what were some of the the mistakes that you made, the, you know, issues that you weren't expecting, the things that you thought you'd be able to be good at, but you weren't necessarily that good at, what were some of those things? Well, first I thought that people would care a lot about the company that when I was recruiting, I had to tell the story of the company or me. And honestly, they don't care about the company. They care first and foremost about the job 
and what their daily life is going to be like. So it was less about what my company had to offer and really what is their day job going to be like and are they going to grow? So it was this wrong focus on me versus solving their pain. They had some pain and can we solve that pain? So really flipping it back. Another classic one was just, I messed up payroll like a couple times. I run payroll late. Our time cards all have to be in and signed properly. And typically like the best employee never had his time card in. And so like minutes before I'm trying to run payroll, I'm chasing him down to make sure his time card's correct because you can't easily go back and fix it after the fact. And my husband would always double check that we actually had enough money and he's working full time. So that was pretty embarrassing. I never thought that I would mess up payroll, but I definitely messed up payroll. And then I messed up like making clear when payroll was happening. So I think that's one of the best joys in business is when you finally give over something that you had to do. Yeah. That you suck at. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And it's not like payroll's that hard. It's just, it was the last thing Time I wanted to do. And, yeah, and yeah, then even yeah. in the marketing business, it was the same thing. I was in charge of payroll and I don't know why. And of course I always screwed it up. I always waited till the last minute, you know, and it's late at night. I invoiced incorrectly too. Cause it's like, midnight, right? I've worked all day and I send out the invoice and, or I haven't been paid by somebody in months and I don't even have time to chase it down because you, one, you didn't track it. And two, you're like, oh yeah, we haven't gotten our $60,000 check, (laughs) but you're too busy, like working on things to chase it down. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know the exact feeling. I'm, I'm curious you know, so on your marketing side of things, you said you you help other companies develop the you know the buyer persona and and all of that. When you when you started sort of shifting your approach with the with the employees, were you explaining what their day was going to look like? Did you kind of walk them down that path? Was that how you? Oh yeah, we had really to connect? absolutely. We had to. For most engineers, you have to describe the technical stack in great detail. You have to explain why it adds value to their career because most of them are not necessarily project focused, but I'm not expecting anyone to work with us for a long time. And the benefits, if they cared about the company, the benefits of what it was like to be in our company. But yeah, they really like it gets down to extreme detail of where is my exact work location? Who is exactly on the team that I'm going to be working with? Who is the exact customer? What are the details of the project? So the stronger we get at really understanding the exact job and the entire day job, which we don't control because as a government contractor, we often are a subcontractor and we might not actually have those details, but the tighter we could get on here is the exact job for you and getting that to them. That's a big game changer because though people want the most money, number one, they look for a very specific job to start with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What exactly, I guess we haven't really even touched this. So you, you've mentioned that you work for the, the government and you do government contracts and whatnot. What are you allowed to talk about? I guess I should ask that first. Are you allowed to talk about any of the projects that, that you've worked on or? Well, 
in general, what we work on is full stack software engineering and big data environments. So we work with systems that collect huge amounts of data and process them in some way, either in streaming analytics or later processed analytics, and then adding another data set to answer some complex question in the fastest way possible and get it to the right person. So that could be business intelligence systems where you're mapping contract data, time cards to performance and answering questions that way. We do a lot of cybersecurity analytics, which is focused on processing network information data as fast as possible and then sharing that information. So another classic example, though, this is years after I started my business, was 9-11 was a major failure because you had two different agencies knew the information but didn't sync it together. So, for example, my husband's job is helping ensure that cybersecurity threats are passed out throughout the government so that the companies, uh, the, the government can do defensive measures, mm-hmm. right? So we always have defensive measures, but you need to know also what the state of the threat is at all times and say, lock down certain hatches if they were open, for example, like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you're saying hatches, are, are, we're, we're basically saying that that's like, a, that could be an office building, right? I mean, that's, that's all sorts of threats. Yeah. 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 Okay. So Got it's, it. it's, you know, I, I I had a customer who loved Disney World, and one of his examples was Disney World has this ex- extensive, complex operational watch center where they're sitting there. I don't know if it's underground with huge screens seeing what what rides are working, which rides have a problem, the fix to that ride. If it's about to rain, then they start pushing out umbrella sales, right? And start Mm -hmm. opening up restaurants and staffing it up so that you can adjust. Interesting. So it's, it's kind of uh, just in time delivery of whatever the environment is presenting. Yes. That's the ideal scenario, right? Is that you're not only processing the data, but you're monitoring it to make informed decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't, again, I don't know if you can answer this, but what are some of the more complicated interesting projects that you've worked on. Are you, are you able, are you able to talk about that? No, I think we just keep it pretty general. I mean, we work for the department of defense. So a large portion of what we work on, uh, one, one interesting thing we do have is we are a contractor at the joint artificial intelligence center. So we are looking at both the technical architecture for the future of artificial intelligence as it applies to the Department of Defense, and also what are the problems we can answer, getting into the ethics of that, how do you process it, how do you roll that out throughout the entire Department of Defense most effectively. Mm-hmm. Where do you see AI taking us in the future? Like, what, What's your vision of, of what that's going to, I mean, I know it's already, it's already there, it's already being implemented in certain aspects, but any, any insights from you on where you think it may take us? I think it is going to continue to provide recommendations on actions. So I think we are going to get extremely tight on ex- able to answer at much greater speed, say perhaps what you want for dinner or even presenting you the options. I don't know that we'll necessarily get to 
allowing the computers to proceed with executing based upon their recommendations. But mm -hmm. I believe we are going to continue to get to extremely personalized and highly effective solutions based on individual wants and needs, be that mission or buyer, consumer buyer trends. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and how do you think that that will be delivered? Do you see it, uh, you know, obviously right now everyone has a phone in their pocket. What, where do you see sort of that delivery mechanism going? It'll be where, how people allow it. You know, some people, I know Under Armour, for example, which is a Baltimore-based business, made a huge play into the athlete allowing themselves essentially to be fully wired up so that they had constant data on themselves from including even cooler sheets so that you slept more effectively yeah, yeah. to improve your training. So I think it will be an opt-in revolution. I'm hoping we're not all putting chips in ourselves in the future yeah. or Elon Musk is working towards brain implants that yeah. allow some of that cognition to improve as well. So I'm hoping it remains not mandated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's optional. Exactly, exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know, like we don't all need Alexas in all portions of our house, right? We exactly. do not need to all have Facebook. So it's like, oh, well, you're not on Facebook, but you're on Instagram. So now they're popping up through Instagram, but now you're on Pinterest and and you're not using Pinterest, but you're using Gmail. Well, you can also avoid those different products and pick products like Opera or Firefox that protect your privacy more. Mm -hmm. yeah, so that, I that believe... I believe in the good of balance. I believe as far as evil tries to go, there's goodness keeping in balance as well of what is good for us and versus just what makes money. I mean, you look yeah. at the example of cigarettes and cigarettes were commonplace and then it's rolled back to not being as commonplace. So, so I, I'm curious, I, I've dabbled with AI a little bit, but not, not that terribly much. Obviously, sounds like you're, I mean, you are absolutely involved in AI much more than perhaps anyone who I've, I've met so far. So I'm curious, is there, is there a, a, I guess, a conscious effort, because you kind of touched on it before, is there a conscious effort not to take it to kind of like the Skynet level where, you know, the, the computers can start thinking for us and doing things for us? Is there actually a, you know, a, a line that, that people are sort of sway staying away from so that they don't cross over into that? Well, or is that 100%, really 100%. I think, and you can see this in Europe with privacy efforts. Mm -hmm. You can see it with people's ability to be erased from Google histories and memories so that, you know, some one event in your life is not readily brought up for all people for you. Mm -hmm. China is working on literally rating people where it's a Google Glass and you have a quality rating similar yeah, to a credit card right. score, which isn't that different, right? And even in credit card scores, you have constant review of abuse of credit card companies and evaluation of scores and the ability to correct it. Mm -hmm. Same thing as you have very va validly with no fly list, but you need the ability to say the computer got it wrong, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the major things that's been raised too, particularly by people of color and women is because technology and artificial intelligence is often so predominantly developed by white men, they are not using data or perspectives of other people. And so for example, artificial intelligence can 
do very detailed recognition among white men, but among men of color, they cannot. Really? Yes. Wow. And there are, there's a whole series of books that show about the lack of proper data sets being used in artificial intelligence and machine learning programs and the negative implications of this. So there is a whole movement around the ethics of artificial intelligence and how far we can take this. And I think you really saw it, for example, in Trump's first election and Facebook being brought to bear to allow false ads or false information because they wanted to be platform and content agnostic, right? Mm -hmm, Their mm -hmm. algorithm allowed for groups to be suggested to groups that were literally terrorist organizations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Facebook and the technology and its algorithms is literally playing into U.S.-based local terrorist groups and, you know, Al-Qaeda using Facebook and Twitter and then Russia using those platforms to create bots and create a misinformation campaign. So this stuff is real and it's happening in our lives right now. And Congress and the current Biden administration is making a very big effort to, one, improve cybersecurity practices and make it more relevant, but also aware of these threats of these platforms. So I think Americans are a little slower to give up what they see as freedoms, right? Where in, you already see with Europe, the GDRP requirements being locked mm -hmm. down yep. much faster and, and rant, I guess. Yeah. I think it's uh there's good and bad with any, with anything that you're trying to do, there can be a negative repercussion mm -hmm. and we always need to be aware of the impact of that. Yeah, no, I, it, it's, it is interesting how, how influential things can become. And I guess, have you seen, you know, in the last four years, like you were talking about when Trump was, you know, first elected and some of the things that happened then, did you see much of a change with this, this past election? Or is it really because there's a new administration in that, that, you know, now things will, you know, hopefully start to push, you know, in a, a, I guess, a more, I don't want to say neutral way, but I guess open direction. Does that make sense? I won't comment on it politically, but I, I do think that there was a much greater awareness of the possible negative impact of using Facebook on your own thoughts. There was the Netflix special called, I'm blanking on the name of the Netflix special, but it really highlighted how extremely addictive these apps have become mm -hmm. and how much they have literally built in psychological and neurological impacts to control our own decisions so that we are not even aware of why we're having these impulses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So I think the public awareness in America has been much greater to the possible strings that are being pulled on us from using what we thought before were benign apps. Yeah. 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 And that's interesting. So, so that kind of leads, have you ever read, um, Breakthrough Advertising by Eugene Schwartz. No. So, so it's a great book. I think it was written in maybe the sixties or so, something like that, but really, really interesting book. And, and he said that, you know, use, use, you know, Bic razors for, for instance, 
you know, when Bic razors first came out, you know, it was a disposable razor. This is great. Nobody's ever heard of this before. And as the, the market becomes more sophisticated, meaning they, they understand it more, you have to keep adding more and more bells and whistles. And, uh, you know, now we've got vibrating razors with balls that pivot and all this and that. So, so you have to keep adding all those other features. So it's interesting that you, that you kind of remind me of that, you know, that, that sort of perspective where, you know, people are starting to get a little bit more sophisticated about these different technologies and how they can impact themselves. So, you know, the next thing is, is to add a new feature to that so that it, you know, makes it seem new and, and sort of disguise it again. So, well, um, another classic example of that is, I mean, look at how addictive TikTok is, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it appeals to the base where I, they're funny, it's interesting, it's quick, and yet it's controlled by one of the largest enemies of the United States, right? Yeah. So we are willingly signing up and giving control of our own personal information to an enemy of like the United States. And further, the other example was the face aging app. So you talk about a massive risk, but you're allowing a unknown developed app, right? Mm -hmm. To, and you click yes, yes, even if they have it, literally like we're taking all your data to yeah. literally take all these images of your face and store it in their database for time. Yeah. I mean, facial recognition software is unbelievably powerful for yeah. whatever else you need in the future. Yeah. There's yeah. software yeah. that scans whole, whole arenas now, right? To identify threats in arenas, yeah. both good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, so uh, I have to ask, are you on, uh, you know, do you use the, the aging app or the aging things or TikTok? Are you on any of those at all? I didn't get TikTok and I didn't do the face aging, but I have played with a lot of dumb things, but my husband is our chief information officer and we do a lot of cybersecurity work. So I hear a lot of it. I am highly aware of the risks and seeing the actual implications of these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I'm not a purist, right? Like he has Facebook too. I understand the risks of sharing information on LinkedIn and the trade-offs, right? Every Everything in life has potential good and bad. Yeah. So you have to think about what risk, what level of risk are you willing to take? Yeah, no, that's, this, this is really, uh, this is fascinating. I mean, we could keep going on and on about these these different topics i'm sure so so let me ask this if if you know obviously you've you've talked about the the government contracts and that's kind of your main industry if someone wanted to reach out and learn more about you guys or learn more about your services i guess number 1 are there other industries that you're looking at serving and number 2 you know where would they reach out to you at sure we are looking at serving healthcare more. So we're moving from Department of Defense to seeing how we can help in healthcare and take that knowledge of gathering data, the data architectures, and apply it to healthcare or pair with subject matter experts in healthcare and provide better solutions. We are also have a app that we're developing that is helping people seeking jobs to become more effective in their job application and their career. So out of the pain point that I experienced and understanding what kind of information people were really thinking about as they were looking for jobs, we are in process of developing an app as well 
to see, to really help the individual market and to provide more equity for those who aren't in a socioeconomic status to be lifted up based upon their network. So can we use artificial intelligence for good to connect the dots for people faster so that their career is impacted better and provide better evaluations of talent that are socioeconomically and culturally blind, right? So there's still, even in tech, a large evaluation of people's culture fit after they come in and how they look and based on their name, which leads to a lot of the same outputs and investments. And can we almost have the symphony went to blind auditions, you know, they went to blind auditions, but then they could tell by the shoes. And then they had to have people just wear socks so that they could audition people fairly. And that led to a large increase in gender diversity within the symphony. So can we move things uh, similar wow. to that? I'd never heard uh, of that study, or I've never heard of that, that process. Yeah, a very common, common one is the perception of the same exact resume with a female name versus a male name. Wow. Wildly different reactions, wildly yeah. different reactions. Interesting. So, so, so that's how we're hoping to grow. We're really hoping to advance within the government though. This, this business Nyla is focused on government contracting and the US government in particular. And we may build a series of products as a result of our knowledge or seeing these pain points that would spin out and be its own entity. You can reach me on LinkedIn. I'm Shana Cosgrove on LinkedIn. I have my own podcast too called Outspoken, where we talk about all these sorts of things, the intersection of money, technology, business, and passion. I love it. And you, our company is www.nyla.io. And that was named after my mother, who is a badass. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Shana, this has been a lot of fun. And uh, like I said, I mean, these types of things are always evolving, always changing. So, you know, I'd love to, to have you on again sometime in the future and we can uh, continue the, the AI chats and you know, anything else that may be popping up here in the, in the near future. So sure, that'd um, be great. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. Shana, again, thank you for being on Past the Secret Sauce today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.